I want to drive you into the arms of Christ. I want to steer you around the noise of the culture so that you can find real and lasting truth and avoid the falsehood that is everywhere around us. The culture is screaming at us. This is what you need to do to be happy. This is what sex and marriage should look like. This is how you should dress. This is how you should do retirement. All of it. Problem is, culture offers a good deal of falsehood. And so today we're going to simplify. And we're going to realize we need only listen to one person and model ourselves after only one person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if we can get there, if we can land into the arms of Jesus, not into perfection, but in a, in a relationship that is deep and growing, then we can discover a new peace, a new purpose. We can discover the joy of what it means to imitate Christ. And that's where we're going this morning, and it's going to be an exciting journey because John is so passionate about getting his readers there. So grab your Bibles and turn to 1 John 2, beginning in verse 1. Page 1020 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 1. So as you're turning there, remember we are continuing to seek authentic Christianity. A Christianity that is grounded in a relationship with Christ. That doesn't flirt with culture. That isn't enamored with just an evangelical way of life. But is landed in and grounded in Christ himself. And remember, two weeks ago when we started this series in chapter 1, 1 through 7, we learned that we can indeed be enjoying fellowship with us, us meaning the apostles who were fellowshipping with Christ, which leads to eternal life. And so that's a depth of relationship and faith through the saving grace of Jesus. Then last week we learned that authentic Christianity means that we can confess our sins and be forgiven. That we literally can confess our way to freedom, and that there is hope there for us. And so today we're going to learn that authentic Christianity means that we imitate Jesus, that we are being transformed into him, His image, and that He becomes the goal of our lives. And we can shut out the noise of culture and focus on what's really important. So look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. John's pretty clear here. He's pretty straightforward. And we talked a little bit about this back in the first week, that John is not a complicated writer. He doesn't have a lot of nuance to his writing. He is going to say it 
and he's going to nail it. And we need to listen to what he's saying. Next week, he's going to delve into some dark things that will lure us away from Christ. But today, it's positive. It's about imitating. It's about putting on Christ-likeness that then helps us to be grounded in Jesus. This is what John wants for his readers. This is what I want for you. I don't want you to be lured away by culture. I don't want you to waste your lives on culture. I want you to focus on Christ. It doesn't mean that we disconnect from culture, because we must be a presence in the world. That's why we have our mission statement, making Jesus known through community impact. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to live by culture's values. We want to be grounded in Christ. And the theme of this is, is seen in verse 6, and it's very clear. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's the whole theme of the section. So we see it here in this first point. Authentic Christianity means that we imitate Christ. We're becoming more like Christ. And it just stands to reason that if we're becoming more like Christ, we will be becoming less like the world. Our hearts will be becoming interwoven with his heart, our minds connected to his mind. We will begin to act more like him, to think like he thinks. Now, again, we're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about a movement into the heart of Jesus. This is a beautiful journey for the believer. It's a lifelong journey. It's one that's worth the commitment. And so John is saying, you can't sin over and over and do this. You have to be committed to that. And here's the desire of the apostle. The desire of John is to help us avoid sin. He knows how destructive sin is. He knows how devastating it can be. This is a guy who's been around and he understands it. So if you look at the first portion of verse 1, we see this desire very clearly. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's pretty straightforward. He understands the consequences of sin. I want to remind you that this is a man who walked intimately with Jesus Christ. He was one of the, the sons of thunder. He was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. This is the one where Jesus dying on the cross looked at John and said, John, here is your mother. Take care of my mother. And when John went to Ephesus, Mary likely followed him there and died in Ephesus. This is the same man. So what did he see? He saw Christ doing miracles. He saw the devastation and consequences of sin everywhere he looked. And Jesus was the healer and the reconciler. But John was well acquainted with what happens when sin gets a grip. And he's saying to his readers, I don't want that for you. Please don't go there. And he's pleading with them to not go there. And his writing is so pastoral. If you look here, the, the term, my little children, is a beautiful pastoral phrase. The word for children here is technia, which literally means little born ones. Isn't that beautiful? He uses a very similar phrase throughout the epistles in his Gospel of John, the term born ones. 
And, and John is this aging man. He's not young anymore. He's at the end of his life. And he sees his flock as children whom he is watching over. These little born ones. And he wants them to be safe. He wants them to go into Jesus' pasture. He wants them to, to graze there in satisfaction and joy. And so he's taking them out of culture and into the arms of Christ. And his counsel is wise. This isn't about legalism. This whole idea of imitating Christ and obedience is not about legalism. It's about freedom. It's about protection. The best way that John, as a shepherd, could protect his sheep was to bring them into a place of obedience to Christ. Because obedience opens up a world of freedom where we can express ourselves the way God created us to be. And meanwhile, the world is saying freedom is take off your shackles, do whatever you want. The end game there is bondage broken relationships, and pain. And so this this pastor, this old man, is directing his people, stay away from sin. Obedience is joy. I want you to find Christ. But John also knew that he was dealing in a real world with real people. And, I mean, here's the guy that for three years traveled with a group of 12 guys. Man, I go to a baseball game with 12 guys, and when I get home, I'm going, wow, these guys are like, you know, it's crude being in that car. You know, everybody's burping, and they're like, you know, and, and it's, can you imagine what it's like to be with 12 guys and watch them sin, and then watch Jesus deal with them? And so he was well aware of sinful men, and he was there with them, and so here's what he wrote. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 last week? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. So John is a realist. He knows that we have a sinful nature. He knows that we have sin imputed to us so we are going to sin. So here's what he's saying. If and when you do sin, I want to remind you that you have an advocate waiting for you. And his name is Jesus Christ. There is no one like that in culture. There's no one like that in the world. You've got to go into the arms of Jesus to find it. So John's point here is this. Sin is not the end. Jesus advocates for us. This should bring hope to your heart. This should make your heart skip a beat, but not more than one. We only have a couple of paddles here. But, and some of you are already half asleep already, but this is exciting. Look at the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, that's amazing. The sins of the whole world. Every person that has ever walked 
the face of the earth, every person that has ever sinned or will sin, Jesus Christ paid for that sin of the whole world. And, and here's the, the, the amazing and troubling thing about how this relationship with Christ works. We see people all around us that are dying in their sin. And all it takes is just a step of faith to say, I, I believe that Jesus can offer me this, and we are saved. Because Christ has already paid this price. He is the propitiation for our sins. So to really understand the weight of this, we must understand what propitiation means. And this is a simple definition of this. It's simply appeasing the wrath of God through a gift. That's propitiation. So the wrath of God is turned on sin, and the wrath of God was appeased by the gift of His own Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid. Thus, the wrath of God, which is biblical, Romans 1.18, talks about how the wrath of God is staring down at all righteousness, unrighteousness of men. And so that means that you and I, without Christ, face the fearsome wrath of God. God's wrath is on sin. But the good news here that John is telling us is that that doesn't have to stay that way. You have an advocate named Jesus and he has already been the gift. And so if you bring him into your lives, if you invite him to be your Savior, you then put on his righteousness. Therefore, the wrath of God is turned away from you. And you can be saved and you can live a victorious life. And I mean, the truth of the matter is we all need an advocate. We all need an advocate. I know that I need an advocate because I sin an alarming number of times a day. And there's many a night when I go to bed and I go, you know, when are you going to get this? You moron. Then I realize it's not really good God talk, you know, not good positive thinking. That's how I feel. And I know that I need an advocate to, to forgive those that have hurt me. I know I need an advocate to help me not demand things from other people. I know I need an advocate that can help me deal with my thought life, anger, all of these things. And who is that person? It's not, it's not a political party. It's not a, a religious system. We put our hope there. Good luck. It's Jesus. I'm trying to drive you into the arms of Christ because he's waiting for you this morning. He wants to embrace you. He wants you to shut off the cultural noise and just go right to him. He is our advocate. He's the propitiation for our sins. And in really a practical sense, he knows that my sin is devastatingly hurtful and it causes pain and it's way outside of just theology. But he's saying, that's okay. I'm here for you. You will be forgiven 
And if you have a relationship with me, you will start to be more and more like me. And then we land on this imitation of Christ, becoming more like Christ, and we find freedom. That's what John is trying to express here. And so, for me, going to Christ, as I, as I grow in my Christian life, becomes more and more common. And it's, it becomes more and more clear to me that Christ is the passion of my life. That He is my heart's desire. That I, I know that the years I have left, I want to spend serving Him, going full blast for Him, not looking back and saying, I wish I would have, because Christ is really, in the end, all I want. And so, here we are, looking at sin and how it causes us to be rattled a little bit, and here, here's what I do. Maybe this will help you. I have two steps when, when sin is a problem and when I'm struggling to find Christ. The first thing I do is I just sit in the sin. I just sit in it. I try not to run away from it. I try not to numb myself. I might throw a few things in the garage, you know, while I'm thinking. Nothing that hurts anything, of course. And usually towards, somewhere toward the, the garbage can. Don't always hit it, but, you know, it's a good, safe place to throw things to. But when I'm sitting in that sin, I'm thinking, how did I get to this place? What's causing this? Why am I reacting this way? What's going on around me? Am I tired? Have I eaten well? Am I stressed? And I let Christ then feed into me in that place. I'm not running. I'm just sitting in it, thinking through it. Because, honestly, I don't want to just be alleviated for that moment from sin. I want to cut it off at the root. And I want to understand why it's happening and why it continues to happen. This doesn't mean that I always figure it out. But there is amazing fellowship with Christ in that, just sitting in sin. And then the second thing I do is I try to move toward Christ and not away from Christ. Many times when there's sin involved and when there's shame, it's easy to just disconnect from Christ and say, I'm not worthy, or you're not there for me, you can't deal with this, so I am going to disconnect from you. But instead, to try to push into Jesus, to try to move into that embrace, into that forgiveness, into that love, into that wisdom, into that life that he gives, the real life, not the fake life of culture, real life. And then what I find, after everything kind of settles down and he's speaking to me, and then he begins to feed hope into my heart again, that, you know what, yeah, I know you're, I know you're frustrated, Paul, I know you're discouraged, but don't worry, because I've overcome the world. And so don't run from this. Let, let the discouraging dark moments teach you. Find Christ in those moments. And for me, I can describe my journey this way. It's, my life journey is, is one of descending into a place where I can't do it on my own. And we had extended family in Italy and... So, you know, I've gone there a couple of times, and one of the big things you do in Italy, especially in the kind of the central part of Italy, 
is spelunking. You know what that is? It's, it's going into caves and exploring caves. There's caves everywhere there. And my big problem with spelunking is I have claustrophobia. So if I get into a cave and I can't move my arms and legs, I will literally freak out and I will cause others to probably cave in the cave. So it's not a really good thing for me. But my journey toward Christ is much like this journey into a cave. Because I don't know what's going to be there as I descend deeper and deeper and deeper. I may end up at times in the wrong cavern. I may hit my head. I might scratch myself. It's going to be a bumpy, messy journey. problem with evangelicalism a lot of times is we don't want messy. We want everything to be clean cut. That's not how the Christian life works. We've got to realize that. And so as I descend into this cave in darkness, it's frightening. I don't know what's there. But in that place of not knowing what to do or where I should go, that's where I find the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that we've created as men and women, but the Jesus that is the biblical Jesus, the real Jesus. And what I find there in this depth is a peace and a joy that only comes through intimacy with Him. But the journey itself is not something that I would necessarily desire. But the end game is Christ. So once I get there, I, I, I find this biblical passage to be true. That there is Christ waiting there, our advocate. And then what I discover when I'm in this place with Christ, I discover real life. And I am able to see that many of the things in my life that I've pursued or continue to pursue are false and they're lies. Adoration of men. Building a career that people are going to notice. All of these things. And I find that the real pearl is just Jesus himself. There is no other prize. But you have to you have to be willing to go to uncomfortable places, I think, because Jesus is in uncomfortable places. Because if we're in a comfortable place, then we're not looking for this. And, and when we find Christ, we find favor and acceptance and love and forgiveness. And we can orient our lives to be Purposeful and meaningful and, and, and rewarding. Not easy. I would, I don't mean to be a prophet of doom here, but I'm just telling you that if you're willing to go on this journey, I will bet you a cup of coffee. It's free there, so I'll bet you a cup of coffee. Although they'll probably start charging after this. That your life is going to get harder. You say, well, Paul, that's really encouraging. No, here's the thing. You want to follow Christ? then he is going to be your prize. The world may not cooperate. Satan is certainly not going to cooperate. And I will say this, that God will bring circumstances into your life that force you to go on this journey. And so a commitment to Christ should not be made in haste. It should not be made on a whim.
Because the commitment to Christ means sacrifice. But again, the reward is staggering. It's Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, shepherd, everything. If you love Jesus, you want to go there. And by the way, that's, that's too where you find the high priesthood of Christ really begins to to come to the fore and you begin to understand it. I love what the author of Hebrews says here. It's, it's a beautiful passage. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He understands And so when you're in this place and when you're finding Christ and Satan is starting to come at you hard, man, it's the high priesthood of Christ that we take comfort in. That's what John wants for us. And so my advocate did um, immeasurable things for me, and he is there. So now John offers a test for us here in verses 3 and 4. And by the way, um, have you taken this journey? Are you aware that the journey even exists, or are you resisting it? Because I think that Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, He's calling out to you. So the test is based on obedience. This is the next big point that John makes here. This test of love for Christ is based on obedience. I know some of you are going to scream legalism. I'm just trying to teach the text. So look at verses 3 and 4. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, whoever says, I know Him, must keep His commandments. If he does not, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. There's John beating around the bush once again. So here's the thematic idea here, again, of imitation. This word for know is gnosko, and it is to know. It is to get knowledge of. And for John, it's either he's either talking about Jesus himself or God, synonymous. Jesus is God, part of the Trinity. We want to get Christ, to know Christ, so that we can live authentic Christianity. And by the way, authentic Christianity is not spectacular. It's not it's not always pretty. It's a grind. It's a day-by-day confession and learning. But this is what we're called to. And so when we when we obey, what John's trying to get at here is that then we are protected because the laws of God are there to help us to be free and protected and are help us to avoid the sins that will trip us up and the lifestyle that will bring heartache. And so then we walk with Christ. And the result, John says, is an authentic relationship with Christ. And this is where we see it pay off in verses 5 and 6. But who... And, and this... This is really important. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. And again, here's the bottom line. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
What's the payoff? The payoff is Christ. Again. This is a little bit different than how Paul writes. For Paul, the idea of being in Christ is a, is a justification. A legal, forensic salvation. That's what Paul means when he talks about in Christ. But what John's talking about in context here is relationship. He's talking about the vine and the branches. He's talking about the fact that though salvation is in granite, that our sinful behavior can adversely affect our relationship with God. And so he's saying, I want you to obey him so you can be in him, abiding in him, walking with him. This is, this is what John wants for us. And again, he's, he's, he's going after the Gnostics. The Gnostics were teaching, you don't need any of this stuff. Well, all you need to do is know enough and have this inner enlightenment. I read a, I shouldn't say this. Oh, why not? They, they, I read a quote today. Oprah Winfrey was speaking at some graduation. I've never heard of the place. And her whole thing was about how just follow your inner self and your enlightenment and you'll find some kind of fellowship in a godhood thing. It was nonsense. That's what John's trying to steer his people away from. Knowledge, inner enlightenment. No, we find Christ in submission, confessing at the foot of the cross. And he's saying there, in obedience, we find Christ. And it's really important that we understand that. Oh, and by the way, before we read a little bit more, this isn't legalism. Not at all. This is, this is obedience that leads to freedom. So, John is saying, don't sin. He's saying, but if you do sin, you've got an advocate and you can walk with Christ. So I ask you today, what are the sins that you're just denying, that you're not dealing with? Are there things in your life that cause you to not experience this deep oneness with Jesus? Because John equates oneness and obedience. Is, it, is God calling you to eat right? Is God calling you to invest in younger men and women? Is God calling you to encourage a person in your life that's hurting right now? Is God calling you to a life of purity? God calling you to integrity? Is God calling you to a purity of a lack of gossip or spreading rumors? What is He calling you to? And are you accepting that call? Because if you resist the call, you will not find Christ. And so, when you think about that journey down a cave, when you think about verse 6 here, I mean, verse 6 is so plain. He who abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Are you willing to go on that journey? Because here's what I want for you. I want you to be able to turn off the culture, and I want you to be able to just settle into the arms of Christ. If you do that, if you're on that journey then Jesus is going to become more real to you than you've ever dreamed he could be. But if you're going to flirt with culture, flirt with things of the world, and then go over here and try to find oneness with Christ, it's going to be really hard, if not impossible, to do that because Jesus is found in places that the culture doesn't even know exists. 
And so I'm going to give you some action steps. They're not on the screen, so I just want you to write them down. When you go home today, or even before you leave the sanctuary, number one, ask yourself, do I even have a relationship with Jesus? You may say, well, yeah, I go to church. No, not what I'm talking about. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Have you said, I believe in the name of Jesus. I am aware of my sin. Only Christ can save me. Jesus, will you please direct my life? Do you have that kind of relationship? Second question. Is my relationship with Jesus more out of duty or love? Because there's a big difference. And unfortunately, in many churches, at least that I've experienced growing up, duty was far more important than love. Because people were really afraid of love. They thought you might even raise your hands in church. I'm not kidding. Third question. Have you asked God to bring sins to mind that are causing you to stumble? So, just... Learn to ask that question. God, what are the sins? Help me with that. Fourthly, ask God to forgive you for those sins and then go with the biblical text. He is faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I would even do this. After you write those sins down or whatever you do with it, crumple up the paper and throw it away. And don't keep coming back to it unless you keep sinning, which you're going to for a while, probably. And then fifth, ask for a oneness with Jesus. It's not a normal prayer, I guess, for, for, for Christians, but to say, you know, I just want to be one with you, Jesus. I want to find out what it means to come into your arms and really experience you because then you're going to find that deep joy of relationship that you can't find anywhere else but in the arms of Christ through imitating Christ. God, I pray that we would somehow go there. The culture is so loud. Our lives are so busy. We're so distracted. But yet here you are saying, I'm waiting. I love you. Please come to me. But God's sin is a Sin is a horrible thing, and it's everywhere, and we're all stained with it. So please help us to cut through that and help us to find your forgiveness and your love, even if we have to go into caves of darkness and uncertainty, and even if we have to cut ourselves up a bit and go into the wrong place once in a while, there you will be saying, thank you for coming and looking for me. I'm waiting for you. I love you. So God, help us to go there. And help us to go there together as a church. We can't do this ourselves. Help us to go there as a community. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?